Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 58 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the mad gasser of Mattoon. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Hey, Jimmy, I want to take a moment before we begin to mention another show on the StarQuest Network uh, that I've talked about before, but I want to recommend again. Uh, it's a show that I'm doing with my wife, Melanie, called Raising the Bets. My last name is Bettinelli. We have kids. We're raising the bets. It's a, it's a little pun. It's at SQPN. Got it. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> it's a, it's a nice, it's a dad joke. Yeah. It's at SQPN.com slash bets. We're a Catholic couple. We're talk about homeschooling our kids, raising our kids uh, and the things we encounter. But also we talk about, we, we're both book nerds. So we love to talk about books. We talk about movies. We talk about, we love to cook. So we talk about food and cooking. So Join it's a in. family podcast. Yeah, it's a family not, podcast. And, and not just in the sense of everyone in the family can listen to it, but it's actually about a family. Right. And so if you have a family or don't, <laughs> and you'll find t- people talk about families interesting, please join in. We've had uh, several listeners to the Mysterious World podcast join us uh, to, on listening to that podcast. And we've uh, we've, we've loved having uh, you all join us. And uh, so it's a lot of fun. So uh Check it out, sqpn.com slash bets, B-E-T-T-S. All right, so today, 75 years ago, actually tonight, September 6th, eight people in the small town of Mattoon, Illinois, reported being attacked by a madman who used gas to disable his victims. And they were far from the only ones. Many others reported similar attacks, and the town was thrown into a panic. The year was 1944, and World War II was on. Our boys were fighting overseas, but a defense front had to be set up in the heart of the homeland. The attacks of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon have become an American legend, and that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Yeah. (laughs) Jimmy, we want to begin with a couple of important notes for listeners. What, What are our important notes? One of them is that some of the dates that we're going to mention in this episode are a little unclear. Accounts differ by a day or two. You know, did it happen on the 8th or the 9th? In some cases, that lack of clarity may be because these things happened at night. And so there's an ambiguity of did it happen before midnight or after midnight? So which side of the which side of the dateline does it fall on? Also, Want to let people know, be sure and listen to the full episode, because there's going to be a dramatic twist at the end of the story that most people do not know about. Even people who've heard about the Mad Gasser before, most do not know about this twist. Okay, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't listen to all the whole episode. But (laughs) for those of you who might have to check out early, uh, make sure to come back and listen to the to the end. Okay. So let's talk about where this story occurs. Where is Mattoon, Illinois, and what was it like in 1944? 
Well, it's a uh, town in mid-central Illinois near the Indiana border. It's a small place. Today, it only has around 18,000 residents. And in 1944, it only had 16,000 residents. After the war, it became the home of a Burger King restaurant. And that may not sound impressive, but for historical reasons, this Burger King is allowed to use that name, even though it's not part of the famous Burger King chain based in Florida. So they're a competitor. Uh, They're allowed to market themselves as the original Burger King. And there's a 20 mile radius around Mattoon where members of the Florida based chain can't set up franchises. That kind of I like that because it kind of gives Mattoon a sort of homespun quality that you have to admire. You know, these little guys who started their own Burger King early are standing up against the corporate giant and holding on. (laughs) So that's cool. Back in 1944, Mattoon was just an ordinary American small town in the heartland. And like many others, it sent many of its sons off to fight in the Great War in Europe and the Pacific. That's an important point, by the way. So keep that in mind, how that many of the men of Mattoon were like many towns were were not Not there. Uh, So if it's so ordinary, what made Mattoon special enough that we're talking about it today? Basically, For a two-week period, Mattoon was seized with panic because of a series of reported sinister gas attacks on private homes. Okay, so when did the first gas attack occur? It was on the night of Thursday, August 31st, 1944. The location was a private home at 1817 Grant Avenue, the home of Mr. and Mrs. Urban Reef, R-E-E-F. Uh, According to reports, in the early morning hours, Urban Reef woke up. He noticed a strange smell in his bedroom. It became overpowering, and he made his way to the bathroom where he threw up. Uh, He woke up his wife, who thought the pilot light on the stove might be broken. That might be the cause of the gas. But when she tried to get out of bed, she discovered her legs were paralyzed. Uh, Eventually, their symptoms passed, and they discovered the pilot light was fine. That wasn't the source of the gas. Also that night or the next night, reports are unclear, a young mother living nearby woke up to the sound of her daughter coughing. But when she tried to check on her daughter, she found she could barely walk. So did it, did any of these people see anybody? No, not that night. But the next night it changed. On uh, Friday, September 1st, another incident occurred. And on Saturday, September 2nd, the local paper, the Mattoon Daily Journal-Gazette, ran a story with the headline, Anesthetic Prowler on Loose, Mrs. Kearney and Daughter's First Victims. A prowler who used some kind of anesthetic or gas to knock out his intended victims was on the loose in Mattoon Friday night. Mrs. Bert Kearney and her three-year-old daughter, Dorothy Ellen, were victims of the anesthetic Friday night as they slept in bed at their home, 1408 Marshall Avenue. Both had recovered today, although Mrs. Kearney said that her mouth and throat remained parched and her lips burned from effects of whatever was used by the prowler who was unsuccessful in getting into the house. Mrs. Kearney told the following story. It was shortly after 11 o'clock Friday night when I went to bed, taking with me my daughter Dorothy. My sister, Mrs. Edgar Reedy, was in the living room of the home, and my daughter Carol, too, and Mrs. Reedy's son, Roger, too, were in another part of the house. I first noticed a sickening sweet odor in the bedroom, but at the time thought that it was, might be from flowers outside the window. However, the odor grew stronger, and I began to feel paralysis of my legs and lower body. I grew frightened and screamed for Martha, Mrs. Reedy, 
She came into the bedroom, to which the door had been closed, and asked me what was the matter. I told her of the sensation I had, but I was unable then to move from bed. Mrs. Reedy at once noticed the odor, which seemed to come in an open window. She summoned a next-door neighbor, Mrs. Earl P. Robertson, 1412 Marshall Avenue, who called police. Mr. Robertson went to the Kearney home and searched the yard and neighborhood, but could find no trace of the prowler. Police also searched without success. So initially they didn't see anyone, but then Mrs. Kearney's husband got home and he did see someone. The prowler returned to the house about 1230 o'clock and was seen at the bedroom window again by Mr. Kearney, a taxi cab driver, as he came home after word had been sent to him concerning the earlier events. Mr. Kearney said that as he arrived in front of the house, he saw a man at the window. He gave chase, but the prowler escaped. The prowler was tall, dressed in dark clothing, and wore a tight-fitting cap, Mrs. Kearney said. Police were called a second time, but another more thorough search of the neighborhood also was fruitless. Mrs. Kearney said that she recovered the use of her legs and arms completely within 30 minutes after the paralysis had set in. Her daughter, Dorothy, became ill from the odor, but had recovered this morning. And people immediately began speculating on what could have caused the paralysis and why the house may have been targeted. Opinions differed as to the type of anesthetic used. However, because of its odor, it was believed to have been chloroform or ether or a combination of both. The ingredients could have been sprayed into the room in a fine mist, and if used at a distance, not too far from the sleepers, would have proved effective, it was said. Both chloroform and ether would have accounted for the parched throat and mouth burns of Mrs. Kearney, as well as the sickness which her daughter suffered afterward. Mrs. Kearney and Mrs. Reedy had considerable sums of money at the house and said that they had counted it shortly before Mrs. Kearney went to bed. They could have been seen counting the money from the street, they said. After the prowler was discovered at the house the second time, Mrs. Kearney, Mrs. Reedy, and their children were taken to the home of a relative in another part of the city to spend the night. Yeah, wise precaution. Yeah, right. <laughs> also, don't don't hold lots of money in cash. Uh, uh, draw the curtains first, at least. Yes, yeah. yes. So this was the press story that you've been reading from that brought the incident to the attention of the public. And the Mattoon Daily Journal-Gazette was later criticized for sensationalizing the story. For example, you'll note that it described the Kearney family as the first victims even though others had not yet been reported, but describing them right. as the first victims implies there's going to be more. Were, were more victims reported? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> by, by Wednesday, September 6th, the Journal-Gazette stated that there were six reported cases. These included another attack on Friday, September 1st, where the victims were Mrs. Charles Ryder, Anne-Marie Ryder, and Joe Ryder, who lived at uh, 2508 Prairie Avenue. And the same night, an unnamed woman and her children in an undisclosed location, were also attacked. Then the gasser took a few nights off, and people thought he might have left town. But on Thursday, September 5th, he struck again, this time leaving lingering physical symptoms. Mattoon's anesthetic prowler, at first believed to have fled the city after his acts of last week, was on the loose again Tuesday night, adding another victim to his list. The latest person to suffer from the fumes or anesthetic was Mrs. Carl Cortez, 921 North 21st Street. But the circumstances under which she became a victim were different from five previously reported cases. Mrs. Cortez, as a result of her experiences with the drug or anesthetic, was violently ill for more than two hours. Her throat and mouth were so badly burned by the fumes she inhaled 
that blood came from cracks in her parched and swollen lips and her seared throat and the roof of her mouth. She showed the condition of her lips and mouth to a Journal Gazette reporter today and said that the swelling of her lips and had nearly receded, but that the roof of her mouth was still parched. She experienced difficulty in swallowing. Mrs. Cordes was the first person to find concrete evidence that some type of drug or anesthetic is being used. Yeah, Mrs. Cordes also got physical evidence of a prowler. She said, My husband and I arrived home about 10 o'clock Tuesday night, and according to our usual custom, entered our home through the rear door. We had been in the house a few minutes and were sitting in the front room when we noticed a white cloth on the front porch against the screen door. I picked up the cloth, which was larger than a man's handkerchief, and unfolded it. There was a large wet spot in the center inside the fold, and without thinking, I brought the cloth to my face and smelled of it. When I inhaled the fumes from the cloth, I had a sensation similar to coming in contact with a strong electric current. The feeling raced down my body to my feet and then seemed to settle in my knees. It was a feeling of paralysis. My husband had to help me into the house, and soon my lips were swollen and the roof of my mouth and throat burned. I began to spit blood, and my husband called a physician. It was more than two hours before I began to feel normal again. You can see my lips and face are still swollen today. Now, you might wonder, I mean, she found this handkerchief, and but you might wonder why would a prowler want to use a handkerchief with some kind of knockout drug on it? I mean, it's not an effective way to disable people at a distance. You have to get the handkerchief up to their face. Uh, and continuing the article, Mrs. Cortez said that the prowler may have intended to knock out their dog, which was at home, and usually slept on the front porch before attempting to enter the house. She said that he might have been frightened away from the front of the house as she and her husband entered the back door. Mrs. Cortez said that on the sidewalk at the edge of the front porch, she found a skeleton key which gave evidence of being used frequently and a large lipstick tube with the contents nearly gone. Police investigated at the Cortez home and took the cloth to headquarters with a view to analyzing it. An analysis had not been made at noon today, however. Chief of Police Cole said that he doubted if the cloth would yield the answer to the drug being used. Chief Cole also said that a man was picked up by police about a block from the Cortez home a short time after the Cortez incident had been reported, but the man, whose name was withheld, was released. The man told police that he was lost. Also, uh, the same night, the gasser reportedly struck the home of Mrs. Leonard Burrell at 809 North 13th Street. She said she heard a prowler at her bedroom window and she was paralyzed by gas for several minutes. And that brought the total number of incidents up to seven. Uh, one comment on Mrs. Cortez. Uh, mm -hmm. If you find a, a large piece of cloth with a wet spot on it, yeah. Don't smell it. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the middle of gas attacks. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, By the way, uh, one one thing that's kind of neat about this, I always love little bits of uh, culture that are different across time. And yes. one of the things you'll notice in all these accounts is the women are all known or referred to by their husband's names. Yes. So Mrs. Leonard Burrell, for example. Right. That's something when I was married, my wife actually preferred that, you know, she would sign her name on checks, Mrs. Jimmy Aiken and stuff like that. But you don't see that as much anymore. But it's kind of a neat bit of culture. Yeah, it really takes you back to the time and place that this was that this was happening in 1944. Uh, yeah. So did things subside after this late, latest attack with Mrs. Burrell? Just the opposite. We're now up to September 6th, 75 years ago tonight. That's the next night. And it had a series of seven attacks that one night involving eight people. Mm. We won't go through the details of all of them, but the few notable facts about them. Six of the eight victims were women and two were men. At this point, as we said, you know, with a lot of the, especially young men, 
are off fighting the war. If you're I've heard people from that generation tell me that, like, if you were a man and you weren't old. Right. You were looked at as like, what's wrong with you? Right. You know, you better be working in some super important defense industry job or something if you're still here, some kind of infrastructure job. If you're a young man and you're not fighting the war. Also, a neighbor of one of the men reported seeing a tall, thin man running from his neighbor's yard. Two of the victims were sisters, Miss Francis Smith and Miss Maxine Smith. They were both school principals. And that's going to be important later. And these sisters lived together? They were I, they were at least staying together. I think they okay. lived together, but they were at least staying together. OK, so there's one house. OK, so is seven attacks. You said there's seven attacks in one night. Is that is that implausible? Well, it's certainly ambitious. And, you know, some of these or maybe even all of them uh, might have been hysteria based on media reports because we didn't get physical evidence this night. But it's not impossible. In episode 38 of Mysterious World, we covered the case of Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. And back before he started killing, when he was known as the Visalia Ransacker, he once ransacked 13 houses in a single day. That was November 30th, 1975. So if the Ransacker can ransack 13 houses in one day, it's not at all impossible for a guy with a gas gun to go around and hit seven houses in a night. How did the authorities respond at this point? There's a book called Mysterious America by a researcher named Lauren Coleman, and he discusses this in his book. Spurred in part by the Journal Gazette's lurid accounts of the fiendish prowler, who in fact had neither robbed nor molested anyone, public alarm mounted. Police Chief Cole ordered the 10 men on the force on 24-hour duty, and Thomas V. Wright, City Commissioner of Public Health, appealed to the State Department of Public Safety to dispatch investigators to the city. Mrs. Cordes's cloth was passed on to chemists at the University of Illinois for analysis. This is one of the strangest cases I have ever encountered in many years of police work, Richard T. Piper, a crime specialist with the State Department of Public Safety, told reporters. His mystification is not hard to understand. The weird attacks, which were rising in intensity, seemed senseless and random. The only pattern, a pretty dubious one, was that most of the victims were women. This was not necessarily significant since a large percentage of the city's male population was in uniform and fighting overseas. So needless to say, people were understandably nervous about all this. So we've covered the events through uh, so Wednesday, September 6th. What happened the next night, September 7th? Not as much, but two of the women who had been attacked the previous night, those two sisters who were school principals, Francis and Maxine Smith, they reported being attacked again. According to the Journal Gazette, the first infiltration of gas caught them in their beds. Gasping and choking, they awoke and soon felt partial paralysis grip their legs and arms. Later, while awake, the other attacks came and they saw a thin blue smoke-like vapor spreading throughout the room. Just before the gas with its flower-like odor came pouring into the room, they heard a strange buzzing sound outside the house and expressed the belief that the sound was made by the madman's spraying apparatus in operation. So two apparent hits on the same two principals' home in two nights. Since the authorities hadn't caught the guy, how did the people of Mattoon respond? Well, they weren't taking it well. Uh, <laughs> Lauren Coleman explains. The citizenry were not taking any chances. If the police could not catch the elusive prowler, 
they would do it themselves, they decided, and they took to the streets with rifles and shotguns looking for suspects. For their part, the police, recipients of considerable public abuse for their failure to stop the attacks, succeeded only in collaring one lowly suspect whom they were forced to release after he passed a lie detector test. All the while, anti-police and anti-city hall feelings grew by leaps and bounds as the helplessness of officialdom became increasingly clear. Businessmen announced that on Saturday afternoon they would lead a mass protest rally to put additional pressure on the already harried Mattoon force, who, it must be said in fairness, were doing the best they could under impossible circumstances. To local officials, the gasser now was more than a menace to public safety. He was rapidly evolving into a political liability as well. So gun-toting citizens were now patrolling the streets, looking for suspects, as well as protesting the authorities themselves. And you know how much the authorities love when that happens. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's, it's pitchforks and torches, 1944 style. <laughs> That's right. So what happened in the ensuing days then? Fortunately, the armed vigilantes roaming the streets didn't kill anybody. <laughs> that's so, <good>. so that's <laughs> good. Lauren Coleman continues. By now, the town was beside itself with fear. At the last moment, state authorities succeeded in talking organizers of the protest out of having their meeting, arguing that it would serve no purpose but to increase the hysteria. They promised to bring in a large force of state police. Already, two FBI agents from Springfield had slipped quietly into Mattoon. Uh, Mulder and Scully, maybe? Uh, that's my, <laughs> my my interjection, sorry. Their chief interest, according to rumor, was in trying to identify the type of gas the prowler was using. Presumably, once the identification had been made, it could be traced to its source. Mrs. Cordes's cloth had been of no help in that respect, for the State Crime Bureau's analysis had revealed nothing. In the meantime, authorities worked with only limited success to keep the vigilante bands off the streets. I, I want to interject here about that cloth. Mm -hmm. it, it, this is all part of the fact that this took place in 1944, not the present yeah. day. You know, the, today we'd have, you know, get, gas mass spectrometers and all that fancy equipment. They'd know in a heartbeat. But yeah. the fact that it took place then is real part, part of this mystery. Yeah. And you can even see that even before the cloth has officially been analyzed, they're saying we don't think we're going to be able to find out much from this cloth. Right. Um, and then, of course, they didn't because they didn't have the technology at the time. OK, so what happened now? The attacks continued for several days. On Saturday the 9th, at least six people reported being attacked. And on the morning of Sunday the 10th, Police Commissioner Thomas Wright issued a statement. There is no doubt but that a gas maniac exists and has made a number of attacks. But many of the reported attacks are nothing more than hysteria. Fear of the gas man is entirely out of proportion to the menace of the relatively harmless gas he is spraying. The whole town is sick with hysteria. And last night, it spread out into the country. So Wright also ordered that all future victims be seen by a doctor immediately after they reported attacks. Notice that he said there's no doubt but that a gas maniac exists. Uh, that's going to be important. He also noted correctly that it seems the gas was relatively harmless because it didn't kill anybody. Mm -hmm. And uh, hysteria was feeding the problem. The final night of the attacks, or at least the recognized attacks, was Sunday, September 10th. Lauren Coleman notes, Most of the gasser's activities took place on the northwest side of town, one of the city's better residential districts. And Sunday night, he struck there again, spraying gas into the kitchen of the Kenneth Fitzpatrick residence. Mrs. Fitzpatrick nearly collapsed, and when her husband came to her rescue, 
he was almost overcome himself. A short time later, three sisters, two of them young girls, aged 12 and 8, smelled a sickly, sickly sweet gas in their living room. The oldest, Mrs. Richard Daniels, was affected seriously enough for a physician to order her to bed. So this attack was taken seriously by a medical professional. You said this was the last night of recognized attacks, but were there ones after that? Well, it's unclear. The police did get calls on the night of Monday, September 11th, but they thought they were all false alarms. And then, even though just the day before they're saying there's no doubt there's a gas attacker, the officials announced an abrupt end to the whole thing, declaring it a big mistake. Lauren Coleman continues, Anxious to wrap everything up as quickly as possible, Police Chief Cole called a press conference the next day and said that he and his men had cracked the case. He asserted it was a mistake from beginning to end. Local police, in cooperation with state officers, have checked and rechecked all reported cases, and we find absolutely no evidence to support stories that have been told. Hysteria must be blamed for such seemingly accurate accounts of supposed victims. Chief Cole did, however, cite something that contributed to the big mistake. He said... However, we have found that large quantities of carbon tetrachloride are used in war work done at the Atlas Imperial Diesel Engine Company plant, and that it is an odor which can be carried to all parts of the city as the wind shifts. It also leaves stains on cloth such as those found on a rag at a Mattoon home. So, uh, sudden whiplash from the authorities. One day (laughs) they're saying there's no doubt there's a gasser, and the next day they're saying, oh, big mistake. Uh, It's all just hysteria plus fumes from a local industrial plant. All right. What did the industrial plant, the diesel plant, have to say about that? Uh, They denied it, uh, (laughs) according to Coleman. A spokesman for the plant was quick to reply. W.J. Webster, works manager, said, We use tetrachloride at the Atlas plant only in fire extinguishers. Trichloroethylene gas is used in our work, and it is odorless and produces no ill effects in the air. End quote. The Decatur Review added its own objections to the police claims. Quote, there was no explanation of why several screens had been cut prior to reported gassing by several persons. Many persons wondered why the odor from the Alice diesel plant hadn't caused illness among the townspeople before. End quote. Nor, of course, did the official explanation account for the sightings of the man believed to be the gasser, the same one who was seen fleeing from houses shortly after attacks, sometimes by those who did not know that an attack was taking place at the moment. One such witness, who chased the stranger several blocks, sticks to his story even today. So do the gas victims I was able to interview in preparing this chapter. And there is still the concrete testimony of Mrs. Cordes's cloth. Okay, so Lauren Coleman is writing, you know, decades after this occurred, and he talked to people who were attacked, and the victims were continuing to say that these attacks were real decades later. Right. So was September 11th the end of the reports of attacks? Unclear. According to some accounts, another was reported on Wednesday, September 13th, although according to other accounts, it was on the 11th. Either way, it was one of the strangest. According to Coleman, the last recorded attack was made on September 13th when a, quote, woman dressed in man's clothing, end quote, sprayed gas into Mrs. Bertha Bench's bedroom. The next morning, she and her son Orville, 20, found imprints of high-heeled shoes on the ground by the bedroom window. So, a report that the gasser may have been a woman. All right. So, what are the theories, what theories are there about the mad gasser of Mattoon? 
I divide them up into three categories. First is theories about whether there was a gasser at all, and if so, who it might have been. Second, theories about the gasser's motives. And third, theories about what the gasser used in the attacks. So let's take them in reverse order. What about the theories about the what the gasser would have used? The initial newspaper article in the Mattoon Daily Journal-Gazette mentioned that it could have been chloroform or ether or a combination of the two. At another point, officials suggested it was someone playing with a chemistry set. So, you know, just some kind of homemade concoction. Also, it could be just an unknown mixture of, of chemicals from, say, an industrial source rather than a homemade thing. All right, and what about the theories of motive? It was initially assumed, as we heard in the newspaper account, that the gasser was trying to disable people so he could break in and steal. Remember those two women who were like counting money at their kitchen table or something and Mm -hmm. could have been seen from the street? Other crimes involving a home invasion like murder, rape or kidnapping could also be possible. One official suggested that the gasser might have been an inventor testing an invention. So that was the motive just to, you know, test this invention or concoction. And uh, then it was also suggested that he was just a madman. He was doing it for no readily discernible sane reason. So what about the theories about the gasser's existence and identity? The theory authorities eventually proposed was that it was all a case of mass hysteria. It was just a popular delusion fueled by fumes from the local industrial plant. So on this theory, there's no actual gasser. Another theory, which was that of most of the victims or all of the victims, holds that the gasser was a real person, a man who was seen running from the scene of the attacks. Then there's the possibility, endorsed by Bertha Bench and her son, that the gasser was real, but it was a woman dressed in men's clothing. Or there could have been more than one gasser, possibly a man and a woman who were partners or one inspired a copycat for some reason. There are also, if you dig into the literature on this, exotic theories like the gasser was an alien or a Bigfoot, but we're not going to be going into those because we don't have good evidence for any of those. Uh, I I really, I'm really curious about the Bigfoot one. Like what was the Bigfoot blowing (laughs) into the house? When when (laughs) have we ever had a Bigfoot do something like this on any other occasion? (laughs) A Bigfoot with gas or, I'm sorry, I don't mean it like that. (laughs) I mean a Bigfoot blowing a chemical into people's homes. Yeah, Uh, although they did say he was tall and one of the people they saw running was tall and Bigfoot is tall. That's true. That's true. Okay. So we always approach things from both a faith and reason perspective. So what can we say about the mad gasser of Mattoon from the faith perspective? Performing gas attacks on people is bad. That is clear. So if this really occurred, it was a bad thing. However, the real question is if it happened or was it just a case of mass hysteria? So there's not really a lot of faith significance to this other than don't attack people with gas. (laughs) That's right. Okay, so then what can we say about this from the reason perspective? What about the theories about what the gasser would have used? I did some checking on the effects of chloroform and ether, the two chemicals that were mentioned in the original story. Some of this, of course, I already knew, but I wanted to get the details. Chloroform is an anesthetic, as people know. It can cause people to have difficulty moving, make them unconscious, or even kill them. But despite what you've seen in old movies and TV shows, you can't really knock someone out with a chloroform rag. It would take breathing from a rag for something like five minutes to go unconscious. So you can't just slap it over someone's face and have them collapse. But 
in this case, people reported smelling this stuff before they got sick for some, apparently for some time. You know, in one of the early stories, the guy's laying in bed, he smells the odor, and then it becomes overpowering, and then he starts experiencing symptoms. So it's like there was exposure and him breathing it for some time before symptoms manifested. Chloroform also causes nausea and vomiting, which is present in some of these cases. It is sweet smelling, which was reported, and it's often mixed with other substances, including ether. You know, the original story did mention it could have been a combination of the two. That was a real thing. Chloroform fell out of popularity, at least used on its own, because it tends to kill people more easily than other substances. There's a fairly narrow window between where it starts to have its anesthetic effect and where it has a deadly effect. So you kind of have to get the dosage pretty in this narrow window if you want to knock people out. Ether, meaning diethyl ether in this case, is also an anesthetic. It tends to numb people rather than put them out. But like chloroform, it can make it difficult to move and it can produce unconsciousness in high enough doses. It also has less of a tendency to kill people, which is why it became more popular than chloroform. It also causes nausea and vomiting. It is sweet smelling and it causes irritation to the respiratory mucosa. That's the lining of our respiratory system. You know how some of these people were coughing. They claimed mouth and throat irritation and so forth. So chloroform or ether or both could have been involved. But I want to mention another chemical called 1122-tetrachloroethane. According to the Centers for Disease Control, this chemical causes vertigo, irritation of the, muco of the mucosal membranes, and fatigue. Also, according to author Scott Maruna, who we're going to hear more about later, 1122-tetrachloroethane is a clear, oily liquid that is extremely volatile with a sweet, fruity odor. Breathing high levels of this can cause fatigue, vomiting, dizziness, and possibly unconsciousness. What about the theories of the gasser's motive? Well, if the gasser existed, he never tried robbing people or raping or kidnapping them. If he in intended to kill people, if the motive was murder, he was spectacularly bad at it because nobody died. It's possible he was an inventor doing human trials of a chemical or a machine he made. But there are better ways to do human trials, you know, controlled studies and stuff. And the kind of data you'd get from these gas attacks would be very poor. So all of that suggests that if the gasser existed, the motive was not a classical crime like theft or rape or kidnapping or murder. It wasn't to test something because there'd be better ways to do that. Instead, the primary motive would have just been to mess with and scare people, either for the fun of it or for revenge or both. Right, and then what about the theories about the gasser's existence and identity? Well, the authorities concluded that it was hysteria brought on by fumes from, from an industrial plant, and that's actually the hysteria idea is what you normally hear. If you, if you listen to the conventional explanations, I'm not talking about the people who are into, you know, mysteries like us, but if you just read standard accounts, the authorities' story eventually became the mainstream account, that this was all just hysteria. And um, this is supported by the fact, if you're going to argue for this, it's supported by the fact they never caught anyone. But you can also explain the end of the attacks as the end. So, well, OK, so if you can say they never caught anybody and and that's why the attacks ended the way they did, as soon as they 
clamped down on the hysteria and said, stop worrying about this. And the police stopped taking calls seriously. It all just kind of died off. But there are significant problems with this theory. One is that there is physical evidence of an attacker like the chemical soaked cloth Mrs. Cordes found, along with a skeleton key and an almost empty tube of lipstick. Some of the victims had mouth irritation leading to swelling and even bleeding. Others saw and even chased a man from the locations of multiple attacks, even when they didn't know an attack was happening. It's not like one of the victims ran out. Sometimes a neighbor would, who didn't even know a house was being attacked just saw this guy lurking around this house and chased him, and then later found out there was a gas attack there. Also, the carbon tetrachloride that the plant used was said to issue, it was only used in fire extinguishers. So unless they set off a bunch of fire extinguishers all at once at the plant repeatedly over multiple nights, that couldn't have produced this. And the fumes from the plant had uh, never caused a problem in the city before or since. And you don't need passing hysteria to explain why the attacks stopped. I mean, there are other explanations for why these attacks would have stopped, like there are armed gangs of men roaming the streets now. (laughs) Maybe if you're a gas attacker, you want to stop at that point. Also, just two days before the authorities uh, announced the mass hysteria explanation, you had police commissioner Thomas Wright saying there is no doubt but that a gas maniac exists and has made a number of attacks. It's hard to see what evidence came in or what absence of evidence made it felt made itself felt during those two days to just get him to completely reverse that judgment. I mean, this is really sudden turnaround. You could propose that the mass hysteria explanation was a self-serving face saving move on the part of the authorities who, when they realized they were unable to catch the man, just wanted to stop the armed gangs of men roaming the streets and get this out of their hair because it was starting to cause them major political headaches. Was there a role for hysteria in this? Sure. Um, I think a lot of the reported attacks could have been false alarms once the press stories got started. Some may have been pure imagination. Some may have been cases of people waking up with food poisoning or sleep paralysis. One of the symptoms, and we're going to talk about sleep paralysis in future episodes, but one of the symptoms of it is not just being unable to move when you wake up, but thinking there's a sinister presence of someone or something in your room or just outside your room. Some of the reports may have been innocent people being seen at the wrong place on the wrong time. You know, like that guy who said he was lost and just happened to be walking through this neighborhood. That could have been true in some of these cases. Some may have been actual criminals, for example, trying to break in without using gas, who then got scared off. And because the person had just woken up and thought, you know, been thinking about these gas attacks, they thought an actual burglar was the gasser when there was really no gas. But they woke up and they screamed and the burglar ran off. But it's hard, even though you can you can dismiss some of these attacks as misunderstandings or hysteria. It's hard to dismiss all of them in that way. So you promised us a twist before the end. So what's the twist? We may know who the gasser is. Mm. In 2003, an Illinois historian named Scott Maruna published a book called The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria. I'm, I'm waiting on a copy for this book to arrive, but it hasn't yet quite gotten here. Fortunately, though, in 2006, the Fortean Times published an article by John Downs that summarized Maruna's findings. 
according to Downs. I consulted Scott Maruna, an Illinois historian who is possibly the world's foremost expert on the gasser. Maruna had already come to the conclusion that the attacks were real, that there was no mass hysteria involved, and that with one exception, there was a single culprit, Farley Llewellyn. This was the argument of Maruna's 2003 book, The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria, in which he set out the following profile of Mattoon's mad gasser. 1. There was what more than one gasser, as conflicting eyewitness reports described dramatically different body shapes. 2. One of the culprits was tall, while another was short and obese. 3. At least one of the culprits had an extensive knowledge of organic chemistry. 4. The culprits lived in the same general vicinity as the victims. 5. At least one of the culprits had the ability to move about town inconspicuously. 6. The culprits had reason to be angry about society in general, which was manifested somewhat randomly. Farley Llewellyn was an exceptionally bright young man who had achieved an exemplary record at Mattoon High School and had excelled as a chemistry major at the University of Illinois Urbana. However, he was an alcoholic and also homosexual, and when he returned from university, it was obvious that he was suffering from severe personality and mental health problems. As he reached his 30s, Farley's behavior and mannerisms grew increasingly strange, most of the town concluded that he was, quote, losing his mind, end quote. Although the family had done what it could throughout Farley's early years to hide from others the then shameful truth that Farley was homosexual, their efforts were futile. The gossip mill had been spreading the news around for years, and it was this aspect of Farley's life that most of the town now attributed his diminishing sanity. Farley's family owned and operated a neighborhood grocery store at 920 DeWitt Avenue. Farley's father was a well-known local philanthropist. However, his two sisters, Florence and Catherine, were known as an unattractive, unkempt, and oddly reclusive pair who never married. Farley lived in a caravan behind the family store, where he built a well-stocked laboratory and continued his chemical studies. Neighbors remembered that on one occasion, just prior to the Mad Gasser attacks, there was a massive explosion and the caravan was severely damaged when one of his experiments went wrong. Farley would never reveal what had caused the explosion, but Maruna believes that he had been synthesizing 1122-tetrachloroethane, whose chemical composition is C2H2Cl4, which, as he writes, quote, is a clear, oily liquid that is extremely volatile with a sweet, fruity odor. Breathing high levels of this can cause fatigue, vomiting, dizziness, and possibly unconsciousness, end quote. It seems almost certain that Farley successfully synthesized this substance and then used it to take a childish revenge on a town that had never given him the respect he felt he deserved. The first three victims were all in their mid-30s and had been Farley's high school classmates. Although it is now impossible to verify this, it doesn't take too great a leap of faith to imagine that these schoolfellows of the unloved homosexual alcoholic had done something, whether real or imagined, which Farley felt deserved revenge. Other victims can also be linked to Farley, including authority figures such as the pair of high school principals. The most damning evidence against Farley is the fact that the attacks ended on the 11th of September. Tetrachloroethane only remained stable for 16 days, and if we hypothesize that Farley managed to synthesize a quantity of it around the time of the explosion in his laboratory, then it would certainly have degraded by 11 September. Farley was arrested on the 10th, 
and he spent the rest of his life in the state's lunatic asylum. The final attack on the 11th was reportedly carried out by a short, dumpy person wearing women's shoes. Could it have been a copycat attack carried out by one of Farley's equally socially adept sisters in a vain attempt to prove her brother's innocence? So this theory fits an impressive amount of the data. And on September 10th, as you just read, Farley was arrested and spent the rest of his life in a lunatic asylum, which, you know, jibes with the authorities' idea that the gasser may have been an escaped lunatic or, in this case, actually one they <laughs> caught. They just didn't know who they had. The idea that one of Llewellyn's female relatives might have tried a copycat crime to convince the authorities of his innocence is not unprecedented. We saw in episode 54 of Mysterious World on the Manson family murders that Manson used the idea of getting his follower Bobby Boussoulet out of jail as one of the motives to get his other followers to commit the Tate LaBianca murders. That was I mean, there was also Helter Skelter, but he also said, let's do a copycat crime so that the authorities will think the real killers are still on the loose, and it's not Bobby Beausoleil who they've got in jail for the Gary Hinman murder. Even the tube of lipstick that was found with the chemically doused cloth by Mrs. Cordes could be explained if it belonged to Farley's sister or if Farley himself was into transvestism or something like that. In any event, John Downs, the author of this article, also visited Mattoon as part of his research, and he interviewed some of the locals, and his findings were very interesting. I prevailed on my guide to drive me to the middle of into the middle of town, where I visited several shops and spoke to a number of the older members of the community I found there. Everybody knew of the Mad Gasser. Everybody knew that it was Farley, and everybody told me that because Farley's father had been such a well-loved and popular member of the community, nobody had been prepared to pillory the family in public just because his son was insane. In order to protect the reputation of Farley's family, the whole town had put up with 50 years of visiting UFO freaks, conspiracy theorists, and assorted nutcases. The town had found unwanted fame as a location of the world's most famous outbreak of mass hysteria. Now there was no longer any living relatives, now that there were no longer any living relatives, people were prepared to talk, and several told me they were happy to do so because at long last, the myth of Mattoon's mad gasser could be laid to rest. And maybe it has been laid to rest. All right, Jimmy. So what's the bottom line? I had always assumed that the Mad Gasser of Mattoon was just a case of mass hysteria. That's what I had heard for years, ever since I first read about it. Ironically, I read about it in the novel Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Huh. And because there's a psychiatrist character who is himself a pod person, but nobody knows it at the time. And he's dismissing all these pod person rumors as mass hysteria. And he cites the mad gasser of Mattoon <laughs> as evidence of mass hysteria. Well, it turns out while researching this episode doesn't look like it was necessarily mass hysteria. There's physical evidence here. And I think the story needs to be taken much more seriously. The eyewitness and physical evidence suggests that the Mad Gasser may have been a real person. And Scott Maruna's theory that it may have been Farley Llewellyn might be correct. All right. So, Jimmy, what further resources do we have for people who want to look more into this? We'll have a link to Lauren Coleman's book, Mysterious America. Also, Scott Maruna's book, The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria. That's the one where he argues it was Farley Llewellyn. We'll also have a link to the Fortean Times article. 
also Wikipedia on the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, and several articles from the original newspapers. I, the one you were reading from, as well as some others, we'll have a link to Wikipedia's entry on Mattoon, Illinois. Also, one of the things you'll read about in some of these is the idea that the gasser was using a flit gun. And today we're not familiar with what flit guns are. Actually, we are. We've seen them, but we just don't know the name of them. It's a kind of an insect sprayer. Flit was an insecticide that came in a distinctive sprayer. It looks like a kind of a long tube with a, with kind of a soup can at right angles at oh, one yeah. end. And you pump the handle to spray the uh insecticide out. So you can read about what a flit gun is and see a picture of one. Also, the Eastern Illinois University website has a section on the Mad Gasser. We'll link to that. We'll also have links to information about chloroform, ether, and 1122-tetrachloroethane. A couple of links about that. So lots of stuff you can take a look at. Excellent, excellent. By, by the way, one, one little extra note for fans of conspiracy theories. There's a novel and a movie called Seven Days in May, which is about a military conspiracy to take over the government. And it's a really good movie. And the central villain in that, the leader of the conspiracy, is a general named James Mattoon Scott. <laughs> and so if Mattoon sounds familiar, you may be to a conspiracy fan, you may be familiar with it from that. Uh, all right, Jimmy. So uh, we have some very good uh, mysterious feedback this week on our Joseph Smith episode of a mm -hmm. little while ago. Stephen on Facebook writes, have you received any feedback on this episode from practicing Mormons? Not that I'm aware of. Not really. I, I would love to get some. I, I may have their like on YouTube. There was a pretty dismissive comment. That was made, you know, as there often are on YouTube, <laughs> YouTube. or any social media. <laughs> but I don't know that the person who left it was Mormon. So okay. I'm not aware of any, but I'd love to have thoughtful feedback from Mormons and, you know, see what they think. Uh, you know, if it's just abuse, that's not particularly helpful. But if they have counter arguments or thoughts, I'd love to know about them. Right. Uh, Suzanne on Facebook wrote, I listened to all of it. As usual, very meticulously fair. Thank you, Suzanne. I strive to be as fair as possible. Adam Hovey on YouTube wrote, Hey, y'all, have you read the book Inside Mormonism by Isaiah Bennett? It was kind of hard for me to find, but I have a copy of it. It's very good. I've gone through it a couple times, and I love how well-sourced it is. Thank you, uh, Adam. Actually, I not only have read it, I sort of kind of partially wrote it. Um, <laughs> I was the editor on that book. And when the original manuscript came in, I asked for, you know, up, I had asked for some changes, some new chapters to be written. And I actually ended up writing some of it myself. So, uh, uh, I'm I'm very pleased with how that book came out. Someone at the time it came out said this will be the standard Catholic response to Mormonism, at least in its present form, until its theology changes. Okay. Uh, Angela Moses on YouTube writes, you may not be aware, but the word Mormon is derogatory and the preferred name is members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I, I I understand that. I appreciate that. And in using the word Mormon, we have no intention to be derogatory. Even Mormons themselves, even though they do prefer like ch members of Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Latter-day Saints or something like that, it can be cumbersome to say that. And also, if you don't use the word Mormon, uh, like in the title of the episode, Joseph Smith, Mormon prophet, people won't find it. Because right. people are looking for stuff on Mormonism. That's the popular term. They Very few people would be searching for Joseph Smith, 
prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which would also be too long as a title. So it's just used for convenience. It is not meant in any kind of derogatory way. And even many members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints either use or at least accept the term. Well, in fact, uh, doesn't wasn't the official website for a long time from the church Mormon.org? I think so. Yeah. I'd have to verify that. But I think I think that is the case today. It's like LDS.org. Right. Brooke Kennel on YouTube writes, excellent episode. For me, the complete lack of archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon is enough to disprove Smith's prophetic status. When I found out about the Book of Abraham gaffe, it was just an extra nail in the coffin. What distresses me, though, is that I've seen several Mormons on the Internet turn to atheism after losing their faith in their church's claims. It's understandable from a psychological point of view for them to be wary of getting burned again, but it saddens me to see them inoculated against the true church because they had a bad experience with a false one. I should also say that it's really great to hear someone talking about this from a Catholic perspective. So many of the videos I've watched of Christians addressing Mormon claims come from an evangelical perspective, and sometimes they suggest things that Catholics would not be able to agree with. Yeah, that's one thing as a Catholic apologist that I'm concerned about is our Protestant friends have produced an extensive apologetics literature, but it sometimes will argue in a way that Catholics wouldn't argue. And sometimes I'll see Catholics, because there's not enough Catholic apologetics literature on different groups, they'll read Protestant literature and they'll sometimes pick up ideas and arguments that's like, actually, you may want to reconsider that one. So I, I try to get material out there that will be uh, helpful from a Catholic perspective. Also, a lot of the literature and if you go on YouTube and watch videos um, you know, on this subject, whether it's Protestant or Catholic or non-religious dealing with Mormonism, there's often a kind of undercurrent of hostility and that I don't like in a bunch of the videos where it just comes out in people's attitudes. There's a kind of gleefulness. And I really wanted to do something that didn't have that, that because that's just going to put people off and and make it harder to get a fair consideration of the evidence if you're right. overlaying it with these emotional negative tones. And so I just wanted to do something like, as always, on Mysterious World, that's just as straightforward and factual and neutral as possible. Uh, when looking at the evidence. And we have this bit of feedback from a listener, Jim. Hey, Jimmy and Dom. I just want to say that I really appreciate and enjoy Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. I've enjoyed listening to Jimmy Aiken with his explanations, how entertaining and informative they are on Catholic Answers, even before I became Catholic, and he's really been instrumental to my conversion to the Catholic faith. And now I really enjoy having the podcast to listen to, to hear his great explanations, entertaining and informative as they always are, about different phenomena in this world. After graduating from university and getting a job, I'm in the financial position to start donating to the projects I care about and I'm proud to start being a patron of this podcast and after the last appeal to even increase my donation amount. So thank you very much, Jimmy and Dom, to this podcast for everything you do. And I really hope it gets to continue in the future. God bless. Really want to thank Jim for his feedback. It's so important that we do get your support at this time. As we mentioned, we're, you know, not yet at the break even point, And so we're burning through our funds at a sometimes 
uncomfortable rate, um, but uh, with your help, we're confident that we can close the gap and get the funding that we need to keep the network going at full strength for years to come. So please do go to sqpn.com slash give and become a patron where you'll get exclusive patron benefits. Uh, So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Recently, the news has had uh, conspiracy theories about Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, The uh, he's not technically a billionaire, though. He's always often described that way, who recently died mysteriously in prison. And so I have an article by Ross Duthat in The New York Times on Jeffrey Epstein and conspiracies. Mm -hmm. And he takes a pretty balanced look at things, sometimes conspiracies. Yeah, they're real. And so we need to be open to that possibility. But we also don't need to be so open minded that our brains fall out. (laughs) And uh, so you may want to check out that article. Also, in The New York Times, we have an article on Robert Ballard's search for Amelia Earhart's plane. You sent me this link, Dom. Thank you. I've been looking at the Amelia Earhart disappearance for some time, and we will be doing an episode or more than one possibly on it in the future. But I wanted to get this out because Robert Ballard is a guy who is known for finding things in the ocean. He like found the Titanic. Yes. And he is in the next few months, he's planning an expedition to look for Amelia Earhart's plane. He thinks he's got a line on where it went down. And you can read about that in this article. Finally, I have an article on the FBI releasing its files on the UFO contactee George Van Tassel. He was a famous guy, not the most famous contactee from the 1950s, but one of the most famous. Uh, He also built a really strange structure out here in California in the Mojave Desert known as the Integratron that's supposed to help you live forever and maybe time travel. And so the FBI has now released its files and it's it's got some interesting Cold War angles on what they thought uh, Van Tassel might be all about. Ooh, interesting. All right. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, so in a second, I'll ask you what our episode is going to be about next week. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible including Cameron C., Paul J., Nick R., Jamie N., and Michael L. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what is our topic next week? Next week is our monthly patrons episode. So the patrons picked the topic, and they are asking us to talk about mind-controlling parasites. (laughs) Fascinating. All right, that's it from us this week. What did you think about the Mad Gasser of Mattoon? We'd we'd love to hear your feedback. So let us know by going to sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, or you can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. You can also send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback, all one word. Remember to like this episode on Facebook, retweet it on Twitter, and get the news out on social media. The only way our audience grows is by you sharing it with people and letting them know that something interesting is going on here in this podcast, and we really do appreciate that. You can find links to all of Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken... Thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. 
Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>